Beyond the clouds, the sky is always clear. Similarly, most diamonds have flaws known as cloud inclusions, which reduce the clarity of the otherwise precious crystal and limit its brilliance or shine. A diamond is the most concentrated form of pure carbon on Earth, and the flaws are often hard to detect with the naked eye. The human mind also has subtle clouds that obstruct mental clarity. In psychology, these are known as cognitive biases or heuristics, patterns of flawed shortcuts in the brain. An example is the fundamental attribution error. We tend to think that what other people do is because of their character, and what we do is because of our circumstances. So when someone else makes a mistake, we judge them as a bad person, but when we make a mistake, we consider all the factors involved that led to that event. This podcast was recorded previously at a live talk on March 27th, 2018, and tried to explore some of the more interesting distortions that block clear thinking. By cutting through the clouds that obstruct our clarity, we can naturally illuminate the mind and let the light of knowledge shine through us. Human beings have many weaknesses and vulnerabilities when compared to all the species on Earth. We're not very fast, we're not very strong, we don't tolerate the elements as well as other species, we can't stay underwater, we cannot fly, but we have an intellect that helps us to be rational and reason through problems, and because of that, human beings have dominated the planet. So it's important that we continue to refine that faculty which gives us an edge in the world. The Indian spiritual teacher known as Ama, or the Hugging Saint, said, Our true nature is like the sky, not the clouds. Our true nature is like the ocean, not the waves. Clouds and waves come and go. The sky and the ocean remain. I hope you enjoy this episode of the Kind Mind Podcast. For some reason, I remembered this story, and I wanted to share it with you. Some years back, I had an interesting conversation over the phone with the inventor of a particular banjo mute. So many of you know I play music in the Giving Tree Band and I specifically play a banjo. And the reason you would be interested in a mute is because the banjo is a pretty loud instrument. And if you wanna be playing into the late hours of the night and you have roommates or family, you might want to mute it. So a mute is a device that goes over the banjo bridge where the strings come over and it holds it in place. And when that bridge doesn't vibrate as much, it doesn't produce as much sound. It produces a soft sound. But what was interesting about this particular banjo bridge was that it softened the sound and made it sound more like a bell. So I was not only interested in Um, reducing the volume of the banjo, but I was also interested in the tone change that it would produce, and I ended up recording with this banjo mute. But I had been thinking about this for some time, maybe even years, and I had been thinking about this this inventor. He had designed other things too, related to the banjo and some other instruments. He had a company in New Mexico. One day I was driving in the evening, and I thought to myself, I better call this guy. I better call this guy and order this banjo once and for all, this banjo mute. And one of the reasons why it took me a little longer was because it's expensive. It was probably like over $100, which for a little accessory for a banjo is kind of pricey, but 
but it's made of brass and it's one of a kind. And there's one made out of silver and I was interested in both of them so there's even more money. So I called them up around seven in the evening and I asked about the banjo mute and he told me a little bit about it and he told me how he invented it and the process involved. And we got to talking more and he started sharing more about his life as a musician. I think he was probably late 50s, maybe 60 years old. We ended up talking for about two hours, maybe a little longer. That's a long time. So I was in the car, I got home, talking in the driveway. Finally, I'm like, well, I definitely want it, so I'm ready to, to order. And he's like, do me a favor. And I, and I tell this to a lot, lot of people before they buy something like this. Please sleep on it. And I'm like, well, I could sleep on it, but I've slept on it for probably months and months, so <laughs> I'm, ready to, I'm ready to order. He's like, no, just call me back in the morning. It, we'll do it in the morning, and, and that way, if anything changes your mind, you can save yourself the hassle. And so finally, I'm like, all right, all right, well, I guess I'll, I'll talk to you in the morning. And the morning comes, it's like nine in the morning, I give a call, no answer. I give another call, no answer. I wait another half hour and I call again. His wife answers the phone and I say, yeah, uh, this is Todd, I'm trying to get a hold of Mickey. He's like, why do you keep calling? I said, because I'm trying to get a hold of Mickey. He asked me to call him in the morning. He said, Mickey's dead. And I'm like, well, when did he die? And she said, in the middle of the night. And um, I said, well, and so now she's really curious. Why, why, uh, why do you keep calling? Like, you know, if he didn't answer, she's, she's concerned and suspicious. And I said, well, you know, to be honest with you, I think it's strange that I'm calling in the morning too, because I was ready to place an order last night, but Mickey told me to sleep on it, call him in the morning. She said, well, he had a massive heart attack unexpectedly in the middle of the night and now he's gone. And that was it. And I had to wait a long while while this process unfolded and then eventually his son helped me get the banjo mute. And an investigator called me saying, why was this person talking to you for hours right before he passed away? Have you talked to him before? What's your relationship? No relationship. Oh, you just randomly called Mickey to talk to him for multiple hours right before he passed away. <laughs> kind of curious. Anyways, my whole point of telling the story is that I don't know what it means. I don't know what it's all about. I'd like to think that there is uh, intuitive, all-pervading consciousness that maybe, maybe connected us. I'm a listener. This was the end of this man's life. There was an opportunity for him to share his whole life story, even though he didn't know that that was gonna be the last time. I see a lot of meaning in that. However, I've tried to keep an open mind about it throughout my life as I reflect on it, because I don't want to just assume things that aren't true, but it's still kind of perplexing to me. So what I have been experimenting with is looking at the cognitive biases that I've learned in psychology and trying to make sure that I'm not just falling victim to different uh, systematic deviations from rationality as I try to make sense of that story. But there's lots of things like that that happen that really can impact the way that we think about life and the meaning of life. And I'm not saying that there is no meaning in that. I think deep down there probably is although I don't have a rational yet explanation for it.
And I've been reading a couple books. I was reading this book called Optimism in the Age of Fear about the current global political situation, which, which highlights some of the really important progress that's happening. Like, like, for instance, world hunger has decreased from 50% of the planet, which is super high, like um, less than 100 years ago, down to like 13%. So that's a positive trend. However, 13% in a planet with uh, 7.6 billion people is like nine, 900 million people. So that's horrible. But that trend is positive. So is there a reason to be optimistic? Sure. And, and looking at facts, like for example, there is enough food for the whole world. That's an indication for hope, I would say. If there wasn't enough food for everybody, that would be a much different scenario. But the fact that there is enough food is something to be optimistic about. Now we have to do the hard work together of making the world a, a more just and fair place. So there are certain pieces of evidence like that that can help us to think clearly. Why? Because we're all subjected to very negative biases in the world. The, the news is very negative. And the reason for that is because we're hardwired to be more attracted to negativity. It's part of evolution. To assume the worst and to be worried is very valuable for our ancestors, especially during hunter-gatherer period. To see something unusual in the field and uh, just wait around with a positive attitude to see what that might be probably wouldn't help you survive long term. Assuming the worst, thinking negatively had a benefit for our survival and it's been passed down from generation to generation for thousands and thousands of years. And so I think with optimism, if we can, if we can interpret this as a collecting of information, as like gathering information for both sides, I think we have to work on optimism because we're naturally pessimistic. Otherwise, we could just be neutral, but we're not neutral because all the studies show that we're negatively biased. Like if we went for a job evaluation and got 99 positive remarks and one thing that we're not doing well, that will definitely outweigh the 99 good things. So because of that, I, I encourage people to practice optimism because we naturally assume the worst because that's what our ancestors did. I'm just gonna assume that shadowy figure is a tiger and run away. Because if you don't, then you would eventually get eaten. So that's, not, but those aren't the uh, stakes today. And that's why it's different. When those were the stakes, it makes sense to be negative. In a safer world, relatively speaking, the stakes are not that high. So we could practice optimism and positivity and hope because the stakes aren't as high and we're reducing our stress in that way. And now we have this as a marketing strategy for news outlets where they lead off with what's negative. They spend more time talking about what's negative. It's not a very balanced presentation of what's going on in the world. And that's an example of a bias. And so I'm going to just share some that I've highlighted from psychology and from the the books that I've been reading. Another book, if you, if you find these interesting or you'd like to learn more, there's a book called The Art of Clear Thinking, or Art of Thinking Clearly, I think it's called, by Rolf Dobelli, a Swiss author and novelist who 
sort of spent years and years collecting heuristics, which are patterns or systematic deviations from rational thought. And I think, it, I think it's very interesting, and he gives lots of good examples of these biases. Some we're, we're familiar with, and others you may have never heard before, but you'll be able to relate to it as I share them tonight. So I'll start with the father of all biases. We're probably familiar with it some way or another, but it's called the confirmation bias. The confirmation bias is the tendency to seek in your life or in your world that which reinforces your beliefs. So we see this play out ordinarily as people take in information from certain sources that tend to agree with the way that they think. This is how it works politically. It also works that way with, with religion. When people have certain religious convictions, they tend to sort of collect that which supports those beliefs and they don't spend a whole lot of time looking for how their beliefs might not be true. Real life is filled with cultural conditioning. Just believe this. We've always believed this. We have to test our own thoughts. We have to test our beliefs. Descartes said a nice thing. If you really want to be a true seeker at some point in your life, doubt everything. And so what this means is don't take this long before you see how you might be wrong. I mean, it's as simple as that. I mean, how many times do we hear, I know for a fact, in relationships, in arguments? I recently switched my phone from AT&T to T-Mobile, which if you have the courage to go through that process, I would, <laughs> and the patience, I would recommend it. But it took me from Wednesday to Sunday to get the phone to work after making the switch and getting it unlocked, officially unlocked from AT&T. So finally, I go back to T-Mobile with the phone to say, it's still not working. It says SIM card not supported. And, and the, uh, the staff proceeded to say, that's because AT&T has not unlocked it yet. And I said, I believe that AT&T is holding this process up, but it is unlocked according to their representatives. I've confirmed that twice, and it shows that on the website. And uh, the staff person says, I'm 100% sure that it's not unlocked. Otherwise, it would work. So I try a couple more things. I'm on the phone with, with my brother at the time, and he says, try this one last thing. Try this one last thing where I start it with the AT&T card, get everything going, and then even when the phone's on, pull the SIM card out, change the other one, and just try to trick it into going. And sure enough, it switches over to T-Mobile, just like that. So I show the guy there and I said, are you still 100% sure <laughs> that it's not unlocked from AT&T? He said, I've never seen anything like that. Now you have. But it's just about uh, changing the way we think and, and shifting our language even, practicing being flex flexible enough. It's okay to be open to the possibility of being wrong and still being right. 
It'll actually help you make more friends, you know. <laughs> you know. So that's why D Descartes said at least once in your life, right? Because you don't want to be like a negative Nancy and just a, a doubter because that's like a party pooper. But at some point in your life, question everything. You know, I, I mean, like I, may, I turned it into a pilgrimage for me where I was, you know, like I took a six month retreat to just break down everything, you know, and rebuild my ideas. Uh, from the ground up. So it's, it doesn't mean that like we just constantly doubt everything. We doubt, you know, what the doctor's saying, what this person's saying, what's on TV. I mean, we don't have to do that, but we should have a, a flexibility about it. So instead of thinking like just being pessimistic, we're just open. We're just practice being open. Now we have these beliefs and to doubt them just means simply to be a little bit more flexible, less rigid. You know, so we could actually think of being open as a positive quality, being more flexible, being more open-minded, more willing and receptive to what other ideas could be, I think would help us. So now how could we use this actually to our benefit at times, even though it could be distorted? Well, throughout my childhood and to this day, I, I do tend to believe that there are supernatural possibilities. Because I believe that, I'm constantly looking for it. And what ends up happening is I find really wonderful things and people and events and experiences, and that tends to enrich my life. Though it may be distorted, I like to live that way. <laughs> so we can experiment with this, because once you understand some of these features of the game, you can enjoy it more. It's sort of like if you become conscious in a dream, you don't necessarily want to exit the dream, you may want to fly. You know? <laughs> we can use some of these to change our experiences and also to help us succeed at certain things. Because once I believe something is possible, I have to start looking for all of the ways I can do it. A baby trying to walk is pretty unrealistic in the beginning. It's going to fall way more than it's going to succeed but that doesn't sway its belief. The evidence is not there to support that you will be able to walk because it just falls and falls and falls and falls. And yet it's somehow, and this is the gift of, of children, it's able to hold on to that belief. It is possible. I don't care that I've fall, fallen, you know, a hundred times in a row. I believe it's possible and it looks and looks and looks and then it he or she ultimately finds the path and achieves it. What we talk about throughout our mindfulness meetings is three core qualities to try to cultivate with our attitude, openness, curiosity, which means you're interested. If you're not interested, we're gonna be closed off then. So the openness has to be followed with curiosity. Even if my emotion is unpleasant or painful, if I'm not interested in it, then I will do things to push it away like isolate, self-harm, drink, use drugs, um, any number of habits can develop so that we don't feel. So open, curious, and then flexible. Flexible means I'll listen to this piece of evidence and then I'll look over here. I won't just run blindly with you know one story. So that's confirmation bias. Another one that I won't spend as much time on is social proof. This is just 
a bias that that has persisted for centuries because to go along with the pack probably kept you alive historically. There's safety in numbers. So we tend to just go with the consensus and believe it. That's why a lot of awards go to whatever was the most popular thing. So why would the most popular also mean the best? If that were the case, then that means McDonald's would always win the cuisine awards of the world. You know, but that's how it works in music. And I know this, you know, as, as an artist, you know, because of all the, the things I've been, been around and events that I've been around, things tend to honor the most popular. And that doesn't really make sense, but there's a bias in all of us to equate popularity with right or the best. And, um, you know, it creates certain complications in society. There's also something known as the reciprocity effect, which means we don't really like the feeling of being indebted to someone, therefore we want to reciprocate. This is why marketers give samples at the grocery store. And I suffer from this because I know that once I go to take the sample, because of my own values, I feel like I need to buy the product afterwards, even if I don't like it. So I, what, what, what I have to challenge myself with is not taking the sample, especially when I know what the sample is like. I just need to ask myself, do I want to buy this today? <laughs> you know. So they do that, and, and nonprofits do that. They send you a card or they send you a little gift. This is our gift to you. And now you have a gift, and you're like, well, I probably should give something. So it's just it's a strategy to play on that, uh, that type of thinking error. Another interesting one is the sunk cost fallacy. You know, this plays out in a variety of different ways. There's a tendency to believe that after you've invested something, that you might as well see that through. And so if you've already spent a certain amount of money, we might as well keep going. And businesses often make this error. It's sometimes known as the Concord effect because when Britain and the United States were investing all this money on the Concord and it ultimately turned out to be a waste of time and money, they didn't stop because they had already spent so much money. And they felt like that would be admitting defeat. But ultimately, they, at any point they realized this isn't going going the way we want, or this isn't going to lead to anything productive, it would have been wise to stop investing. Now, what else do we invest in? Relationships, friendships, enemieships. <laughs> I've known this person this long. I mean, sometimes I ask people, why do you keep spending time with that person if you're always unhappy afterwards? Well, we, we've always done this. Yeah, but you don't like it. <laughs> and you don't like that person. Yeah, but I've known him my whole life. So also romantic relationships. You know, people tend to, even when there's little, little hope for success in the relationship, people will stay in because I, I've known this person for so long or I've invested so much into this relationship. There's, you know, no way I'm going to just leave or, or, or give up. But sometimes that is the healthiest thing. So that's called the sunk cost fall fallacy. It's also known as the Concord effect. Um, really what this means is only assessment of the future is what counts. 
what really counts. Can this relationship succeed? If so, continue to invest. It doesn't matter that you've already sunk so much money into the stock. What will the stock do next? It's all that matters. Will it go up? If it go up, you'll start making money. If it will continue to go down, doesn't matter how much you've already invested, right? So it happens in a lot of different fields of life. And that's why we have to think clearly. Am I staying because I have realistic hope that this could get better? Or am I staying because I already sunk a cost? If you're making a decision because of the sunk cost fallacy, that would not be sound decision making. If I'm making a decision for something else, that's okay. You may decide to keep, to keep investing in something for other reasons. There's something known as the contrast effect. If you put one of your hands in a bucket of ice cold water for a period of time, and you pull it out, and then you put both hands into a bucket of lukewarm water, to your right hand that was in the cold bucket, it will feel hot. And to the left hand, it'll feel lukewarm. So what is, what is right? Well, it's a contrast bias. Because of the prior experience, it skews the perception, even our sensations. But this sometimes plays out in relationships as well. Sometimes in relationships, people will be in a dysfunctional relationship from the perspective of a third party. But from the perspective of the person in the dysfunction, it may be much more functional than their previous experiences. And so though the, the third party goes, you gotta get out of that relationship, or you gotta get out of that marriage, it may be harder from, from the other person depending on what contrasts that in their own experience. If somebody had an abusive relationship in childhood, they may be in a much better situation in adulthood, but it's still dysfunctional. And it may be hard for that person to still see it as dysfunctional. That's called a contrast bias. And to me, that's similar to the confirmation bias. When you have a, a string of events, we tend to tie a cognitive thread through them all. Like the example I gave, if, if there was no hot water and I overslept and then I got flat tire on my way to work, we could, we could conceive of how we think that the day is doomed and that's gonna be a crappy day. And then once you have that belief, then the confirmation bias kicks in. You actually start to look for more negative things about why your life sucks. There's another one called the hedonic treadmill. I talked about this a little bit in, in previous groups, but um, there's a notion in all of us that we know what would make us happier. What would make you happier? For me, it was a motorcycle when I was eight, when I told that story, because Bill had a dirt bike and Zach had a go-kart and I didn't have any, you know, little motor device yet. Then I got it and crashed it. And, and after a month or so, got bored and I went back to feeling the same amount of discontentment that I had before I got the motorcycle. So there's a lot of research from psychologists that follow lottery winners. And um, 
monitor their mood and life satisfaction. And they find that on average, after about three months, their happiness levels or contentment, life satisfaction levels go back to exactly where they were prior to winning the lottery. It's similar with loss too. There's also lots of research when people take a major, receive a major setback that in general, they tend to go back to the mean. Even people who have devastating injuries. Why? Because your attitude is largely a personality trait. And it doesn't just change that, that easily just because circumstances change. Socrates said, if you're not content with what you have, you would not be content with what you want to have. Either you're content or you're not content. Contentment is an inner experience that has to be cultivated. But there's something called the hedonic treadmill where we're constantly making decisions based on how much life satisfaction we think that would bring us. If we think of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, what's at the base? Food, water, shelter, so safety and security, which means not self-esteem and peace of mind. That's on a whole different plane. So giving yourself more and more food and bigger and bigger shelter will only keep that box checked. It doesn't translate to more happiness. That's on a different plane. If you want more happiness, you have to start to ascend the pyramid, which means living in a certain way. It's the same with the Eightfold Path of Buddhism. Desire and achieving your desires, fulfilling your desires, is not going to bring everlasting happiness. It's like a fire that you just keep tossing fuel onto. It just keeps burning and burning. And there's no end. It's not wise to make decisions based on how you think the circumstances will change something that's on a different plane of the hierarchy of needs. Want to be rich for a different reason, or want to be famous for a different reason, but try not to pursue it thinking that, that in that somewhere or someplace is my happiness. Another one is the, um, it's called neglect of probability. Why do so many people get excited when the Powerball goes up to like $500 million? Because it's a ton of money. $200 million is a ton of money. $30,000 for doing nothing is a ton of money. But somehow, when the magnitude is great, we forget that the probability is just as low as it ever was for winning $100 million, $50 million, and it's still just a dollar a ticket, I think, or whatever it costs, right? But somehow, once it goes up towards a billion, the whole country freaks out, right? If I asked you, would you rather buy a ticket to win $10 million, where your odds are one in 100 million, or a $10,000 jackpot, where the odds are one in 10,000? Most people would rather play the $10 million game, even though the probability is so much lower. One in 10,000 is low, but it's significantly better. And so what this shows is human beings tend to be more concerned with the magnitude of the event than probability. And we see that play out in that positive side, but it also plays out in the negative side. So. There was an experiment, some researchers did an experiment with electric shocks, and they told participants in two groups, group one, you will receive a mild electric shock. Group two, they told in this experiment, there's a 50% chance 
you're gonna receive a mild electric shock. And they measured their stress and cortisol levels and they found there was no difference between the two. Whether there was a 50% chance or a 100% chance, both were equally unnerved by it. So at what point does that percentage get low enough where your stress goes down? It turns out it has to go way down because they repeated the experiment with 20%. Group A, you're definitely getting an electric shock. Group B, there's a 20% chance you're getting an electric shock. Same stress. Then 10%, then 5%, and still the same. And then 1%, still the same. Not until it got down to zero did those people's stress reduce. So it had nothing to do with probability. It only had to do with the magnitude of the event. That's why people get so freaked out about things that are highly unlikely to happen to you. The intensity of that event is, is very serious. So even though the probability is extremely low, it can dominate talk and news cycles and things like that. One in three women have heart disease. That sounds like something that really needs to be talked about a lot, but it's not as intense of, an, of a concept as terrorism, war, and uh, Ebola, and, and Zika, and, and all these other events that happen in the world that are really terrible if they happen to you, but exceedingly rare. So the risk is not really as important as the magnitude of the event. There's so many more. If you're interested in learning more about some of these, you can look at one of those books. Google different cognitive biases and read more um, about them. And then our challenge is to try to be open. So I bring these up so that you could see how we can all fall victim to some of these errors and deviations, systematic deviations from rationality.